0: Welcome to Willoughby Hills. I'm Heath Rosella. I'm glad you've joined me today. Glad you made it to another episode. Sandra Goldmark is my guest today. Sandra is a professor at Barnard College. She's a theater set and costume designer. And she has been leading the sustainability conversation with a really interesting book called Fixation, How to Have Stuff Without Breaking the Planet. We're going to talk about stuff today. It's a really interesting conversation. It's a really interesting way to kind of view consumption in this country. If you've been reading along with my newsletter at all, you probably know that I've been on this year-long No New Clothes Challenge. I'm about three-quarters of the way through the year right now, and I did end up buying one new shirt, and I bought two thrifted shirts. But otherwise, I have not bought any clothes in whatever, it's been eight, nine months, something like that. So yeah, I've been in this mindset of using less, consuming less. And now, like I said, I, I write about it in the newsletter. If you're not on the list yet, go to heathrasala.com slash newsletter, get on that list. I write a new newsletter every Wednesday and every Sunday and talk about these issues. So yeah, I, I, it's it's been on my mind, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And Sandra comes at it, from a place that I understand because of her background in theater design and set design, costume design, all of that. You know, when you work in the arts, there's a lot of resourcefulness that needs to happen. If a director wants to see some big elaborate set piece and you don't have the money to go out and, and make that piece in some way, you've got to improvise. You've got to figure out other ways to make that happen. So I think theater people by their nature tend to be very resourceful. They tend to reuse things or reconfigure things or, you know, make something that was this one thing in Hamlet work for a streetcar named Desire, you know, like whatever the show is, whatever it needs, they figure out how to make it work. And kind of born out of that idea, Sandra began opening these little pop-up stores in New York. They're called Fix Up now. They were formerly Pop Up Repair, where people would bring Whatever they had that was broken, coffee machines, lamps, wooden furniture, whatever it was, they'd bring in a piece and say, hey, can you fix this for me? And Sandra and some of her friends from theater would figure out a way to get stuff fixed. They'd charge for the service, and they would keep things from going to a landfill. And that experience made Sandra realize, hey, there's a market for repairing stuff. There's a market for fixing. There's a market not just for new goods in this country— How do we tap into that? I mean, you think about like you go to a Toyota dealership, let's say, and there are brand new Toyotas on the lot, fresh off the assembly line. They've got five miles on them, but there are also used cars there. Now, imagine you go into a clothing store, and that model holds. You go in the Tommy Hilfiger store, whatever it is. (laughs) I guess that's still cool, maybe, right? I don't know, but like, I don't know. You go in Calvin Klein, Abercrombie, whatever it is. I'm really dating myself. I don't know what a good reference would be, but you go into a clothing store and there's some, there's some stuff up front from that manufacturer and there's some other stuff that's used from that same manufacturer. Imagine Ikea doing that. Imagine all these different stores where you could have the option of brand new or used, gently used, a little cheaper. I used to love going to a, a CD store when I was growing up. Same deal. They had brand new CDs and they had used CDs mixed in. If it was really important to you to unwrap the plastic on that CD, you could get it brand new, but you could also get it used. So that's a big part of what Sandra's book ends up being about. How do we design in the first place for repair so that repair can be easier, can be done by consumers? How do we repair what we have? And how do we make the logistics of secondhand work? So it's not sifting through bins at a goodwill, and hoping that maybe you'll find something you want. But it's just as convenient, just as easy to click that Amazon button for a brand new as for a used. gets there just as quickly. And it's keeping things in circulation that are still useful. We'll talk in the interview about the parallels that Sandra draws between her work and Michael Pollan's. But I, I definitely see it here. This Reading this book, reading Fixation reminded me a lot of reading The Omnivore's Dilemma, of kind of realizing for the first time, hey, there is this problem, but more importantly, there is a solution. So keep listening. You'll hear how Sandra thinks about Michael Pollan and sort of where the parallels between food and stuff are, but that is really fascinating. And I got to say too, it was interesting recording this interview because this is another one I did in my RV while I was down in Florida. And it was interesting just like, being at disney world and thinking about stuff because my mind kind of went to two different places on the one hand of course there is the materialism side of disney that you know the reputation of every ride exits in a gift shop and that is a hundred percent true and there is so much stuff there but on the other hand like i get the resourcefulness of the theater there and the stuff in there is gonna break like all the time probably right and in some cases, it's stuff that's been there since 1971 when the place opened. Like you go on, it's a small world. It looks the same as it did 50 years ago. And so what does it take to keep that going? Well, it takes a lot of maintenance. takes a lot of ingenuity. It takes when a part breaks, somebody has to figure out how to fix it. it takes people maintaining the look all the time, repainting and, and keeping it keeping it looking nice. And that ties back to Sandra's work both on like the theater side of being resourceful, but also on this idea of we need to treat the stuff that we have better and maintain it and keep it going. And so it was just interesting to, to be at Disney World, having this conversation with Sandra and thinking, wow, there are people working really hard and being really inventive to keep It's a Small World or Space Mountain or whatever it is going and looking the same, while at the same time, right next door, there's a gift shop selling stuff that's probably going to get thrown away in, you know, a matter of minutes or weeks or months or who knows, but a lot of cheap disposable stuff. And I guess that's kind of where we are (laughs) with our relationship to stuff. And I want to say too, and we'll talk about this, but Sandra does not want to shame people into not having stuff. And she acknowledges up front just how human it is to have stuff. So it's, it's complicated But she's got some great ideas. We talk a lot about them today, and a lot more of them are in the book. Fixation, how to have stuff without breaking the planet. All right, here it is, my conversation with Sandra Goldmark. I was really interested in reading the book of kind of the connection between theater and your background in theater and how that informs the stuff in our lives. I'm wondering if you could talk just a little bit about how you view the intersection of theater and and people's things
1: sure so as you kind of implied as a as a theatrical designer i learned how to make and fix and buy and choose all kinds of stuff so i certainly have gained there the interest and ability in fixing things but on a deeper level working in theater as a designer made me think very deeply about stuff i mean that was my job right is to choose which objects go on stage and learn to make those choices in a way that will help tell a story, that will yeah. help create a world, that will help define a character. And so I started realizing that offstage, we are also defining ourselves, our characters, our worlds, with our stuff to some extent, perhaps less intentionally than a theatrical designer might, or less yeah. obviously. But we're actually telling the story offstage as well.
0: Yeah. And, and what's interesting to me is you kind of have this thesis up front that stuff isn't necessarily bad, and that, like owning stuff, is a very human urge. I think, like that's for me, anyways. It's it's this tendency to want to recoil and say, you know what, I own too much, and like forget it. I just want to, I want to be a monk and strip it all away. But like that's not really practical, and that's not really human, is it?
1: That was for me, yeah, a huge realization as I wrote this book that it's hopeless and pointless to try to reject stuff, and it's depressing to start to feel like all stuff is bad and. We're- Drowning and clutter. I had a lot of negative feelings around stuff, you know, especially when I was writing the book and everything was breaking and my house was cluttered. And then I realized this is not gonna work. I'm a human being, right? Human beings need stuff to survive. It's part of who we are as a species. We make objects with our hands like this is a defining characteristic of our species. We can't survive without it. How long would you last? Like, totally naked in the wild without even a little stone tool to, right. to get yourself some food. Yeah. Not long at all. So as soon as I realized, like, okay, this is not optional. And it, it's funny that I even had to realize that, but I feel like we take it for granted in, in so many ways. But I realized this is not optional. And it can, in fact, it's a blessing. It can be quite joyful. Like, food is not optional either, yeah. right? And food can be a source of anxiety, a source of stress, a way to freak out about how messed up the food system is. Or it can be a source of joy, a source of nourishment, a way to spend time with people and to like physically appreciate the beauty of the world as you put it in your mouth. And stuff is the same way. like we need stuff to survive, and it it can be a real source of joy in our lives. It can be a way that we define our identities as I said before. So we shouldn't try to push it away. Like if you're into minimalism, good. good on you. I'm glad that works for you. But if that doesn't work for you, that doesn't mean you have to, you know, feel guilty. We just have to start doing it better.
0: Yeah. Because like you, you talk about like a stone tool in the woods or something, and like that's kind of stuff at its simplest form, but you mm-hmm. also give space for somebody that wants a, a ceramic trinket or you know, like it doesn't have to be purely functional or, or necessarily beautiful. Like if something no. speaks to you, it's okay to want that.
1: And more more deeply even, not just stuff for survival as human beings, but decoration clothing as a form of communication like there are real things that we do with our clothes with our objects that are way beyond survival again as as human beings and we need to kind of honor that it doesn't mean that like it's okay that we're creating a huge amount of waste and bringing toxic materials into our homes all of that can be done better but it doesn't have to be done better in a way that makes us feel bad about like desiring that, what did you say, a little Kleenex box, a little trinket? Yeah, I mean, I whatever picturing... it is, a little ceramic yeah. thing or a
0: plate or yeah, you know, whatever like, it is. It, it doesn't have to be something that everybody sees as valuable or, or right. that has a utility in everyday life.
1: Right. It's just part
0: of your story. Yeah. And yeah, that's you, okay. Totally. And, and you drew the connection just now to food as well. And that comes up a lot in the book. And I, I almost see this as kind of an answer to Michael Pollan. You you quote him a lot and kind of talk about mm-hmm. his eating philosophy and kind of in my own journey that's been sort of how I've progressed through this world of like it started with being very focused on diet and and being very conscious of what I was eating and then that started to move into other places you say okay well if i'm very intentional about wanting organic carrots maybe i should want organic cotton for my clothing too you know like it's interesting just kind of those parallels and I, i'm wondering just why you drew that connection between the work of pollen and and your own work. And, you know, it was it was a very strong thread throughout the book.
1: Yeah, I really leaned on pollen and broad, more broadly, as you say, kind of sustainable food and agriculture for two reasons. First of all, I feel like, again, in our society over the past 10, 20, 40 years, there's been a lot of discussion and thought about what we eat and how that relates to our personal health to public health to climate health i feel like that conversation is is more advanced than the food movement is more advanced than what i call the stuff movement yeah but at the same time they're very closely related it's about consumption right it's about materials that we extract from the earth turning them into something beautiful or delicious with our hands and then either putting it in our mouth for food or on our body and into our homes for stuff And so the basic principles of searching for a joyful, healthy, good for the planet way of eating, those basic principles apply to stuff. And I felt like for people who are maybe a little bit new to this or feeling like, oh, it's overwhelming to think about all my clutter and all my toxic carpets stuffed with flame retardants and people being paid $3 a day to make my phone, like all of that overwhelm is something that Michael Pollan did a beautiful job at cutting through and saying there is a simple, joyful, common sense way to approach food. And I think there's a simple, joyful, common sense way to approach stuff as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, you boiled down Pollan's um, kind of slogan about that. to your, your iteration on it is have good stuff, not too much, mostly reclaimed, and then you add care for it and pass it on, which yeah. like that last piece of it, the reclaimed and caring for it and passing it on. That's a big part of the book, too, because that's something we we are so kind of throwaway in this culture now. And, you know, we, we might donate old things into a thrift store bin or something and think we've done our part and not really thought about how to how to close that full loop.
1: Yeah, it really starts with the mostly reclaimed part, which is, again, with the food analogy, I think about it. Think about it as a stuffed diet, right? Like I want to feel happy in my home. I want to be making choices that aren't, you know, wasteful or damaging to the people who make my stuff or to the planet. One of the major tools at our disposal is thinking about bringing more used goods into our life and less new goods. It's just so simple. Yeah, Kind of like the simplicity of being like just eat mostly plants. Yep.
2: It's
1: not that you can never have meat or it's not that you can never buy a new item, but it's like thinking about how do I turn up the dial on high quality stuff, used goods whenever possible and turn down the dial on like cheap new empty stuff, calories
0: yeah i mean i think one of the problems though that you hit on really well is uh, just the challenges of shopping secondhand that like Mm -hmm. when i go into a target or something i know that okay i need a you know six quart pot or i need a new pack of underwear you know whatever it is like i know exactly where that's going to be i know they're going to have it i know they're going to have the right size i'll tell you just like i'm recording this in my rv right now and I've wanted some cast iron cookware for in here and have been looking multiple times at several different thrift stores. It's not necessarily like just for that, but it's like, while I'm there, let me see what I can find because cast iron's fairly easy to restore and, you know, it lasts forever. But like, I might find one that's just a little too small or not quite right. Like there's this challenge of you almost have to go on, on this wild goose chase. And, and you point out in the book, like, it doesn't have to be that way that there, we we could apply some of the same logistics that we use for new goods to used goods.
1: I will say, even I agree, it is harder right now to buy used than it is to buy new, for sure. Yeah. However, it actually is, in a good way, it, it slows you down a little bit. Right. Because you're you're going to be like, oh, do I really need this pan?
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if you really
1: need it, you'll keep looking. Yep. And the good news is that it has gotten easier every year. Since I started the repair shops and even since I wrote the book, every year there are new ways and companies and startups that are trying to address that question of what, what you're calling, which is reverse logistics. Yeah, Which is right now, it's so much easier for you to buy a new cast iron pan than it is for you to find a used cast iron pan that's appropriate for your needs and the size of your home. But it is getting easier every year. And I do hope that like as we look forward, I have faith because we have built the most insanely powerful forward logistic system. Like actually it's crazy if you think about it. It's backwards that it should be easier for you to get a new cast iron pan, you know, made somewhere very far away, have delivered to your home tomorrow. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. And yet I'm sure right now, you said you're in Florida right now. I'm sure that there is a there is a cast iron pan in Florida right now that is appropriate the size for your stove. Sure. And if we if we were able as humans to build that linear system, we can build A circular system where you could find that cast iron pan easily and get it delivered to your door. We just, we're not quite there yet, but it's getting better every year.
0: Yeah. But I mean, you talk about the logistics side of it, but also the potential economic side of it. That like you talk about IKEA a lot in the book and the idea, Mm -hmm. as you're just saying, that like it's a lot easier to flat pack furniture and send it halfway around the world than it is to buy a used piece of furniture at IKEA. And you talk about, the potential economic opportunities for an Ikea or a Patagonia or companies like that that want to bring used goods into their stores or maybe have repair options as well and actually charge for that. That's something that we don't think about now. We think of economic progress as as purely being buying new things and, and shopping for new things. But there is a major economic opportunity as you present it, for secondhand as well.
1: A huge one. Um, so Juliette Shore is this economist from Harvard, and she wrote that either we have to grow less or we have to grow very differently. Yeah. And as you said, right now, growth, we very much define it as making and selling more new stuff every quarter, every year. Like that, that's kind of economic growth. right? <laughs> and then creating jobs to support that. But if you begin to think about growth as more of a diversification strategy of saying, I'm going to sell some new goods, I'm going to sell some used goods, I'm going to repair some goods. Then you have, as in nature, a more resilient business model where you, instead of just one source of revenue and one definition of growth, you have multiple ones where you can offer new goods, you can offer service, you can offer upgrades. It's a more resilient system, just like in nature, if a, if a system has kind of multiple ways of surviving or multiple plants and animals that, that fulfill the the needs of the system; it's more resilient. So, I think circularity and companies that are leaning into this are actually setting themselves up for success economically in the short and long term.
2: Yeah.
1: I will add: there's one thing that I'm seeing, like, and um, that's emerging that I is like distressing me a little bit, as I feel like some companies are are seizing the economic potential of circularity, but they're seeing it as an add-on.
2: Mm.
1: Like, here's my existing revenue stream; let me add resale and repair on top. Yeah. And we need to be very clear if we are going to make a dent in emissions and waste and habitat reduction it's not just an addition it has to be a replacement yeah we have to make and sell less new goods and right. there's very few companies that are out there trumpeting that so that'll be the next wave of somebody saying i'm i'm replacing my new sales with repair not yeah.
0: just adding right on the repair piece i want to talk about these pop-ups that you were running in new york city because that's a piece of the book as well and it's it's a fascinating Notion. So basically, it was you and and several of your theater colleagues that would a lot. You'd have these pop up businesses. People would bring things to you, and you would help repair them. You would find that some things were really easy to repair, and some things were really difficult to repair. And I guess just tell me about sort of that experience of kind of diagnosing all these different things and figuring out what what could and couldn't be fixed, and the way that we build new products these days.
1: Yeah, it was very funny and sometimes heartbreaking and often very frustrating repair is hard even for a well-designed object because each object breaks in its own unique way (laughs) but by and large an object that is well-designed of strong durable materials and and was designed especially was designed with repair in mind is usually pretty easy to fix like a wooden chair that's well made of good wood you can fix it a KitchenAid mixer. The KitchenAid mixers um, are really designed to be fixed. In fact, KitchenAid offers their own service. And then there were a lot of objects that were clearly designed never to be repaired. Sometimes even designed never even to be opened. Yeah. And then you're really beating your head against the wall and have to get super creative and bring all the little theater ingenuity into it. But it's it's a pain in the butt, frankly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I mean, that's a piece of it, too, is just uh, the way that these products are designed have become so cheap and the material so cheap, you know, a lot of uh, you talked about like plastic uh, cogs and different things in there that that snaps off and there's not really an easy way to replicate it, or at least not a cost effective way you talked about you could 3d print it or something. But like, at the end of the day, it's, it's a huge effort for a for a small reward.
1: Yeah, I mean one of the iconic items there's this lamp that broke very early before before our first shop even and it was a classic plastic break. It's like a little tiny plastic part that is a pivot point. So you shouldn't make a pivot point out of a out of plastic.
2: Yeah.
1: And it broke and it was not screwed in, it was riveted in. So mm. you can't even like take that part out. Like yeah. you'd have to drill out the whole thing and then sort of reconstruct a different pivot point. I mean, it's basically almost unfixable. I still have it in my house <laughs> because it's such a like iconically
0: horrible design. <laughs> and it's still, it's snapped in half still. And
1: yeah, the head, it's like one of those flex arm lamps and the head is just dangling by the cord. <laughs> it's drooping. It has been now for 10 um, years. Wow. <laughs> It's, it's, it's frustrating. And then, you know, there's the, let's not talk about the electronics, the phones, the iPads, the printers there. It's really frustrating because some of them, it's not even a cheap object. Like it's one thing that lamp that I'm talking about, I don't know, it was a cheap lamp. I think I got it like Kmart or TJ Maxx or something when I was young. It doesn't excuse it, but at least you understand at that price point, but you know, $600 phone, $800 phone, it's very shocking and frustrating to see it be designed to to literally go into a landfill.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you talk about that too—that this idea of of recycling. Like we think, we hear, you know, Apple or other phone manufacturers tout their recycling programs, or you know, bring us your phone. But a combination of the way that they're constructed and just the volume of how many are produced and how many are returned, very few of them are actually able to to really be reclaimed.
1: And it goes back to that that little sort of adage that you mentioned um, in terms of closing the loop. Like if you're a phone manufacturer and you're not using reclaimed materials or reclaimed parts, even better, yeah. in your new phones, I don't really want to hear about your recycling program, right. basically.
2: Yeah.
1: Like you need to be designing a product that is modular, where you can be not just recycling, but reclaiming full parts and components and reclaimed materials and then we can talk about your end of end of pipe recycling program. Right. You know, it's kind of like you mentioned earlier. Oh, I just dumped my clothes that I don't want anymore in the church basement. Yeah. That's not circularity. That's outsourcing the responsibility for circularity on some mythical person or some mythical phone that's going to use your reclaimed stuff.
2: Right.
1: It, it has to be, you have to be thinking about it at the full cycle. The good news, I will give a slight shout out to Apple, is they have recently, since I wrote the book made some more explicitly circular commitments that oh. are quite exciting having to do with a uh, sort of minimum percentage of reclaimed materials in their products so that is good news
0: yeah because as you say you need that that pipeline like if you're not going to use the reclaimed products there's no point in claiming them
1: yeah if we're not designing new products with a with the highest percentage of reclaimed materials and parts is possible, then then our entire recycling system is a joke yeah. and there's no market for it. And in fact, it is a joke. If you look at the numbers right now on plastics recycling and on electronics recycling, it's abysmal yeah. because new products don't have basic minimum requirements for reclaimed materials. Yeah, we're, There's a little progress. We're slowly, a little bit, we're moving in the right direction, but we need to be honest about about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, the one good thing I'll say, like you mentioned Nespresso coffee machines in the book and like how horrible they are to repair. I had one that actually, it was in my old office pre-COVID and I didn't use it for three years. And then we were going to use it on this RV trip. And I went to try to test it at home before we left and it didn't work. And I'm just like, what's going on? I said, "It it feels like it needs to be primed or something. So I just Googled like Nespresso machine priming. And there were 20 different videos on youtube i said oh good like i can fix this let me try this none of them have you go through the inside they're all these kind of weird like you know workarounds of you know try inflating a plastic bag and pushing down in the reservoir like i literally tried four different ones i finally there was a woman that was using like a, a thick boba tea straw and was blowing into the like water inlet and that ended up working but i i, I was literally like i i saw the video i said okay, where's there a boba tea place? Like, cause I don't have a thick straw. I went down to my basement and found like some pipe or something that was just wide enough. It it needed to be thicker than the regular straw, but it was like, I wanted to stick with it. Yeah. And I wanted to stick with it (laughs) out of stubbornness of just like, you know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to fix this. But it was literally four different fixes, all completely unrelated of like, try this to get your Nespresso machine to work again. And it was just a thing that people literally said in the videos, like if it sits for too long, it loses its prime and you just need to prime the pump and and it'll go again. And I'm like they know that's a thing like why why that should be an easy thing there should be a prime button or something
1: it's insane it's insane and it's like the kind of insanity of it is something that we really encountered in our repair shops where people when we had these little repair shops where you could sort of shine a spotlight on this insanity people were almost like you like they get very excited and and they were relieved to have someone acknowledge that this is crazy yeah. <laughs> like it doesn't make sense that for you to just clean your Nespresso machine you had to watch five different YouTube videos. It sounds like none of them that were on the manufacturer's website.
0: Yeah, none of them were. They were all they were all users.
1: Yeah, like it's crazy. I think that was one of the fun things about this these repair shops is it was this collective moment where every community we could go into people could be like, "Yeah, this is stupid and messed up and I it doesn't even make me happy." Yeah. Like in addition to the ridiculous amount of waste, in addition to the emissions caused by manufacturing all this unnecessary stuff, in addition to the kind of, you know, all of the big global questions, like on a very personal level, people felt that cognitive dissonance of like this system is cuckoo and, and, I, and I don't even like it. I don't want to throw away my Nespresso or my vacuum, or my lamp because of one tiny broken part. Yeah, I want to fix it. And here's the key. I'm actually willing to spend some money to do it. Like, you were willing to spend time. Most people that I found in my shops, they're not, and this is not a judgment on them, they don't have the time to do what you did, to watch five YouTube videos and go search in your basement for a special-sized bobo tea straw. Like, (laughs) (laughs) a level of time that's wonderful. But we can't expect, like, working parents and everybody to do that. But they are willing to spend a little money. Yeah. So this is where the economic argument comes in, which is like, Nespresso should be capitalizing on that on your your urge to fix it your willingness to spend time or money and that's okay again like it's okay to charge people a little bit for some service yeah and I think we all need to acknowledge that this system, this kind of linear, wasteful, crazy YouTube video bobo tea straw system is just <laughs> not right.
0: Yeah, <laughs> but but it's interesting too. Like you talked about the people that were willing to pay for these repairs at your, at your pop-up shops. And a big part of it wasn't just like, yeah, I could get another coffee maker or whatever, but it's like, this is my coffee maker. Like we feel a very personal attachment, even to things that maybe aren't, that special to us it's not you know my grandfather's coffee maker that got passed down to me it's something I bought at Costco five years ago but like it's still mine and we feel a sense of ownership over our things
1: we do there was a study I found and when I was writing the book that they, there was some scientists and they had people like a disposable plastic cup they had them some people write their name on the cup yeah and other people didn't write their name on the cup and then they did something and then they like threw the cup away or whatever it was and the people who had just simply written their name on the cup, we're like 10 times more likely to keep it, to rate it at a higher value, to throw it in the recycling bin, like all of these things. This is great because it means that people might actually be willing to repair stuff. Contrary to the kind of cultural quick story that we're a nation of wasteful, horrible, over consumers with a sort of use and discard mentality, we're not. We're yeah. not. Yes, we like new shiny things, and yes, we kind of want a good deal. But actually, we're also willing sometimes, especially if it was made easy and more convenient, we're willing to spend a little more for quality, and we're willing to spend a little time and money to fix things. And this again is like the huge opportunity for businesses. Yeah. It's like your moment of frustration; they should have fixed that for you.
0: So, like going forward, what does that look like? Just you know, for for these big, you know, multinational. Conglomerates that are that are selling consumer goods and only see their business model as selling consumer goods. Like, how do you begin to change their minds?
1: It's starting already. That's the good news. It's starting. There's consumer demand. There's policy, and then there's companies that are legit about sustainability, seeing the writing on the wall, and realizing that they cannot have a meaningful sustainability strategy unless they're actually changing their business model. So when I wrote the book and when I researched the book, we were still in the era where I feel like businesses were kind of like saying, we're going to put solar panels on the roof, but we're going to also keep trying to sell as many widgets as we can. Yeah. And now companies have realized that it, it doesn't fly, that you can't keep making and selling more and more and more and claim to have any kind of real strategy. So it is slowly happening that companies are beginning to make better new goods and even more slowly get onto the bandwagon of resale and repair. Yeah. But there also have to be some policy to get us there faster.
0: Yeah. And one kind of cultural shift that's happening too, I think, is there was a, a, a long era where we were told to forget how to do things by industry, mm-hmm. you know, kind of starting that post World War II era of like, let us handle everything for you. Let's have microwave dinners and, you know, whatever it is. And people got away from, all different sort of skilled trades, whether it's sewing their own clothes or cooking their dinner or woodworking, whatever. Um, And you you talk about in the book, this idea that like, if you don't know how something's made, it's much harder to fix. Whereas like, Mm -hmm. if you understand how things are put together, you, you can say, okay, if a chair was built this way, here's how I, here's how I fix it. I feel like that's starting to come back. Some of the, the, knowledge you know just the the homesteader movement and things like that it's trendy on instagram i guess whether or not that's the reality on the ground
1: yeah it is that's where it gets fascinating where you see these little threads and how it connects to like a deep societal move away from certain skills and certain practices like you know look at our educational system that has really prioritized reading and math over any kind of kinesthetic hand-based work you know home, act, shop class, any of these things where you use your hands have been art class even have been yeah. sort of downgraded. And so, yeah, we're left with a society where designs that are sort of impenetrable and where you can't get in like the classic sort of iPhone or iPad is just like a shiny white or black box Yeah, and a population that has no time and has fewer and fewer skills to actually do some simple repairs, or even know that they're possible. It is—it is, it is funny to see how these seemingly unrelated social forces are actually related.
0: Yeah, I was just thinking, like glue is such a simple thing that you talk about in the repair shops, and having the right glue and using the right glue, and like you can fix—I don't know, fifty percent. You tell me how <laughs> many you saw, but a <laughs> lot of a lot of things that uh, you know, simple glue is is all it takes.
1: Glue is awesome. Although when you're making sometimes don't want to glue things down to all the designers on the call (laughs) if my repair friends would be very angry if they heard me (laughs) glue is complex you don't want to glue some things down but of course you need to glue for repair but yeah like but uh, and and then on the other hand it's not that complicated right like anybody can learn to use two-part epoxy and quickly fix a little broken thing or take it to a little repair shop. like i think there is an opportunity like i think that you're hinting at that like you said it's taking off on instagram the homesteader stuff like there's an opportunity for us to, yes, get back into that and to see something that's designed to be modular or taken apart or fixed, to see that actually as, as appealing as like, oh, isn't this a cool aesthetic as opposed to like the 1990s and 2000s era, like smooth, shiny, black, white, impenetrable box design being yeah. cutting edge. What if cutting edge was something that you could actually use and improve with your hands? Like that's kind of a cool new potential definition of good design
0: yeah and there's one thing that a lot of us use every day that i think it kind of fits into that. Just the more that I was reading your book and thinking about, okay, like design, repair, whatever, like cars, like air. you can repair a car endlessly. You know, the transmission goes, and they put a new transmission in, or the air condition. Like, there's a breaking point for everybody that whether it's a hundred thousand miles and a three thousand dollar repair bill, or hundred fifty thousand miles, or you know, but some people drive their car for two hundred fifty, three hundred thousand miles, and they're they're willing to put that money in to continue to repair it. And there's never really a point where you take it to a mechanic and they just throw up their hands and say, no, like, I can't fix that, you know, the tire blue, sorry, yeah. that's not repaired. Like, everything on a car is modular. And as long as you can get the part, like you can repair it.
1: Yes, but sadly, some of the kind of newer cars, especially the electric vehicles, I don't see that. I actually see us moving away from that. I feel like certain, you know, you look at an EV, there's that, it's that kind, it's a little bit of like an old school iPhone aesthetic where it's like this modular dashboard and touchscreen and no knobs and all, like that's actually harder to fix. Yeah,
2: that's true. You know,
1: it's not like, it's not kind of modular and designed for repair and designed for disassembly. So I, I, I think you're right that historically cars have stayed as one of the few kind of products that we really did fix yeah. and continue to fix. But I look at the, some of the new EV designs and I'm like, oh, we're not maintaining that really important characteristic.
0: Yeah. It becomes an electronic device instead of a, mm-hmm. a modular thing. Um, exactly kind of wrapping it all up i guess like even if individual consumer sentiment shifts like i I still think about just you know fast fashion or like you hear the the stories about uh brands just burning you know tons of of unsold clothing or you know whatever it is like just peak stuff it feels like still continues to happen whether or not there's consumer demand for it and i just wonder like do you see that shifting anytime soon, or, or what do you think it's going to take for that to shift? Because it just feels like it, it continues to happen, and and that cycle mm-hmm. is there whether or not we want to opt into it. Like somebody's always going to be buying stuff.
1: I feel like you're we sort of asking about how do we get there? Like, what are the real levers for change to actually get to a healthier system? Yeah. And I think that they obviously that's the million dollar question for all climate related issues and all questions of like equity. And I think there's a number of really big levers. We need to have much stronger regulations around mandatory recycled or reclaimed content, extended producer responsibility. Like there's a whole bunch of legislation that's more advanced in Europe and is beginning to happen in the United States, right to repair. Yep. So we need to set some some standards. I think we also need corporations on their own to continue to get serious about sustainability strategies like they shouldn't be just sitting around waiting for the legislation and i think we need consumers to really shift their spending patterns because they in the apparel sector like resale has been growing much faster than traditional retail
2: yeah
1: and boy are those companies noticing yeah and there's one big lever here that i think is like incredibly important and may not be obvious but it has to do with international labor standards. Mm. We need people in manufacturing countries to be fairly compensated for making all of this stuff and we need for the prices of the, our goods to re- reflect those fair wages and reflect the true cost of extracting all the raw materials. Yeah. This is a little bit of a lightning rod because it means that new goods have to be more expensive in places like the United States. Sure. where we where we're consuming far more than our fair share of resources. And this is not a popular thing for, you know, no politician is going to stand up and say, I think goods need to be more, new goods need to be more expensive right. in, in your neighborhood. Yeah, But it's what needs to happen if we want to have fair wages overseas, if we want to really incentivize reuse and repair and create a circular economy where there's access to high quality goods at multiple places in the system.
2: Yeah,
1: And fair labor and fair costs, real costs that reflect the true price of things is kind of what is underpinning the whole mess right now.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's to go back to the car analogy, like there is that system, right, of like if you can afford it and you want it, there are $75,000 cars or $30,000 brand new cars or if you have $10,000 to spend, there's a used car available or if you have $3,000 to spend, there's, you know, a really old used car available. but like at the moment, a lot of places in in America, you need a car to be able to get around and and operate and things. But like having all those different costs available gives you the options. Whereas like, you know, if you go and buy a shirt at Target and it's 20 bucks and like, that is what it is. Whereas, you know, if you had a a shirt that was actually 40 or $50 and then you had used options that, okay, well, I can't afford the $50 one, but I'm going to buy the $10 used one. Like it kind of, uh, that that market corrects itself.
1: Right. And that needs to be not stigmatized. Secondhand goods shouldn't be like, oh, a fallback or sort of less appealing option. It needs to be a sector of the economy that we recognize how important it is and support it and and use intentionally as a strategy both to reduce emissions and to create local jobs and to create access to high-quality goods. Like our whole Thinking about stuff over the past God, I don't know how long, probably a hundred years, has been cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. New goods. We've had a very singular strategy of what the the ultimate good is here, which yeah. is low price, easy access, high volume, and that is just not going to work.
0: All right, there we go, Sandra Goldmark. Make sure you check out Fixation: How to Have Stuff Without Breaking the Planet really good read my 10 year old actually picked it up and loved it and has been reading it as well really eye-opening and it has definitely changed how I think about good design what I want in something when I purchase it brand new and it's also opened me up to being a lot more willing to buy used goods like you don't need the new set of drinking glasses from Walmart or Target there are millions of cool drinking glasses on the shelf at Savers or Goodwill or whatever it is, and they're kind of funky, and they look cool, and they might last longer. Who knows? So anyways, love talking to her. I'm glad you made it through the interview. Thank you for checking that out. If you're interested in learning more, read the book, obviously, but also read along with my newsletter. I publish issues twice a week and uh, talk about sustainability a lot, talk about how I'm doing with my relationship to stuff, new clothes. It's what interests me right now. And I hope you'll find it interesting. Go to heathrasella.com slash newsletter and you can sign up there for free. I am at Heathrasella on Twitter, Instagram, and now threads. You can give me follows over there. Thank you for that. And uh, thank you for listening. Leave a rating. If you like this show, leave a review. And I will talk to you in two weeks. Stay safe.